Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today we're talking to Matthew Wolfmeyer about his wonderful new book, Unraveling, Remaking Personhood in a Neurodiverse Age, which is just out from University of Minnesota Press. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. I'm happy to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so ostensibly, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I'm a little ambivalent in that role. I was um, trained in history and in cultural studies and in literature. And at some point, I was working with someone who's an anthropologist named Jeff Brown at Bowling Green in Ohio. And I was kind of tired of reading books um, Mm -hmm. in terms of like the source of my evidence. And um, he, and after a long conversation, he was like, Oh, what you're really interested in is ethnography. And um, I had no idea what that was because I had never taken an anthropology class up through, um, that second master's degree I was getting. And I started to get interested in what ethnography was. And he recommended um, a bunch of books that only later did I realize were not very traditional in terms of their role in the anthropological canon. Um, but it was enough. I, can, I mean, we can talk about those books in a second, but um <laughs> it was enough to get me to apply to anthropology PhD programs. And um, as I was hedging my bet, I um, only applied to institutions where they also had a PhD in American studies, because I figured if anthropology didn't work out for me, then maybe I could migrate over to an American studies PhD. And brilliant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't I mean my first year. So I think, you know, the schools I applied to look very different than most of the people who apply to go do a PhD in anthropology because they're really committed to anthropology. And um and really through the beginning of my second year, I was pretty sure that anthropology was not the place for me. Um because the books that I had read were uh, Sid Mintz's Sweetness and Power and Emily Martin's uh, Flexible Bodies. And they were like what I wanted to do in many respects, right? They're kind of like these big projects and they're kind of multi-sided and they're historical and ethnographic and they bring all this stuff together. And in the first year in my PhD program, I was reading things like Evans Pritchard, with, wow. you know, and, and it was just like, what is this? And, you know, like, why should I care about these people and their cows? Um, and, you know, and I, because I had never taken an anthropology class, suddenly I was TAing for anthropology classes and coming out of a pretty, like, anti-racist um, American studies background. It was, I really was like, what is going on in this discipline? And um, it was only at the beginning of my second year when I started to TA for the person who ended up being my dissertation advisor, and her name is Karen Sue Tossig. And she was a student of Emily Martin and Sidman's at Johns Hopkins. And 
um, you know, she's an anthropologist of science and does critical medical anthropology. And she, you know, is really entrenched in feminist science studies. And um, I was like, oh, like, this is the anthropology that I'm interested in. And I mean, I was like, simultaneously emailing the director of graduate studies in American studies at uh, Minnesota about moving over there and like coming to know Karen Sue. And that was really a, a, a vexed educational moment. But I think in many ways that, um, you know, those foundations, the kind of like feminist science studies, critical medical anthropology, the American history stuff, really have been the um, through line in a, a lot of what I work on. And, you know, m- mostly what it tries to do, whatever the project is, is like situate some kind of contemporary ethnographic stuff with long term historiographic stuff. And it's also, in some respects, um, like uh, focused on textual analysis and media studies. And I I got a lot of support doing that, like a weird combination of stuff from people um, both at Minnesota and and previously um, at Bowling Green. And, um, And then in, well, during a different economic crisis, um, got a first tenure track job at Wayne State and then um, moved to um, the University of California, Santa Cruz for about eight years. Um, And that was like a pretty good fit in a lot of respects because um, like history of consciousness was still, I mean, it was kind of towards the, end of its first phase. I don't know how we talk about the history of the history of consciousness. Uh, Donna Haraway was just retiring. Hayden White had just retired. Uh, Jim Clifford was about to retire. And those were all people who like were really formative for my like intellectual development. Um, And so, you know, although I was in anthropology there, I was doing kind of weird stuff. And so, um, I think what we're going to talk about unraveling and that, that book I think is really informed by uh, being in Santa Cruz for a long time and like being undisciplined in many respects, right? That like, I don't, sometimes I think about myself as doing interdisciplinary work, but more often I think about what I do as being undisciplined and in that it doesn't really fit in many respects into kind of conventional ways of thinking about what anthropologists do or what literary scholars do or what historians do. Uh-huh. So let's, can we talk about that for a minute, how you came to, to write Unraveling? So this is not your first book. Um, and it and, and in the book, you say it started out being a book about autism. Yeah. So, this so is, t- tell um, us a little bit about how this, this project evolved. The second book I wrote, but it's the third book I published. Um, and the... Um, the reason why is because um, peer review took a really long time, and that's no fault of anybody's. Um, but in one of the like peer review periods, I wrote this other little book called "The Theory for the World to Come," um, 
and the, and then this book came out. So sometimes I slip and talk about it as my second book, and sometimes I talk about it as my third book. But it in 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 many respects, it really is my second book because okay. it tries to follow through some of the argumentation that started in my first book that's called The Slumbering Masses. And that book is um, about sleep in American society. And it was really situated in an ethnography of a sleep clinic. Um, And then some ethnographic work with patient support groups um, and who that were both kind of local and national, and then a bunch of historical work in archives um, on the kind of early development of sleep science in the United States. And in, while I was doing that work, um, the people that I... Um, worked with in the sleep clinic kind of dispersed in a variety of directions and um and i was kind of enrolling other neurologists and psychiatrists into my fieldwork network in some sense and so i was really um uh interested in following up on some of the things that kind of came out of my relationships with with those neurologists and neuroscientists and psychiatrists right and they and they show up in various ways in unraveling um and so you get um these interactions in unraveling between me and them that where they're kind of posing questions or they're posing problems and it sets me off on some kind of ethnographic or archival quest in order to answer the questions that they pose me with. And, um, and so one of the, you know, in, in many respects, the sleep clinic was about, you know, everyday disorders, right? That like for most people that were coming into the sleep clinic, it was about like becoming normal again, right? That they were, um, you know, suffering from something like insomnia and, it was, I mean, they're at the sleep clinic, so it was severe insomnia, and the clinicians there really worked to try and get them back on track, right? And and so a, a lot of the slumbering masses is really thinking about, like, how normalcy is constructed biomedically and how sleep is one of these terrains where normalcy, especially in relationship to, like, industrial and post-industrial capitalism, kind of gets meted out, right? And what I wanted to really think about, and part of that was in these engagements with the people in my field, were the kind of abnormalities that weren't so easily resolved, right? And in some respects, you know, we think about that as fitting under the rubric of disability. Um, and and that was, and at the time, I mean, this was like in 2000 and. 2006 you know autism was really cresting in its like diagnoses right that it was really becoming in some sense a kind of public health concern and so early on i was kind of interested in autism and then as the as a kind of um if sleep was a kind of exquisite example of everyday abnormality autism seemed like a, a, a you know an example of something that was um, 
not quite so ordinary, right? Um, and um, and then, uh, so there was a version of Unraveling that was really autism-focused, and I was doing fieldwork at a um, special education facility, and I was doing some fieldwork with, like, parent support groups, and um, it seemed pretty um, straightforward. And, and then I applied for an ACLS grant and got a review that was like, uh, like, I'm not so sure that autism is enough to do what you want to do. And, um, and I sat with that review for a while and uh, decided that that reviewer was right. Um, and so what really started to develop out of it was thinking about the status of nonverbal and um, and the kind of reliance on language that is evident in a variety of traditions um, across the kind of psi and neurodisciplines, but also in the humanities and social sciences. And so in many respects, I think unraveling is really me grappling with um, the kind of obligatory verbalism that we think about um, in terms of personhood and subjectivity in American traditions. Um, and, and, and so like in thinking about how, like what's beyond autism, it was really thinking about other forms of being in the world where communication is impaired in, um, a variety of ways. And so the other cases that are, so there's a bunch of cases in in unraveling that are about autism, but there's a bunch of cases that are about deafness and um, a little bit about aphasia. And in thinking about that stuff, it was really thinking about how do we move beyond this kind of obligatory verbalism in thinking about who counts as a person and what kinds of subjectivity are possible. So you you write you wrote as you were writing the book that you told your friends and I I think this is hilarious and also spot on that what you were working on was a quote unquote perverse Oliver Sacks book so so um, can you t- tell us what you meant by that and in, in what ways did did it turn out to be um, did this fairly you know um, book that started out being just about you know being about autism morph into a perverse Oliver Sacks book. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I mean, I, I, I say that knowing that Oliver Sacks in many respects is a little bit perverse in his own way. And, and that's great. Um, may he rest in peace, but the, you know, I, um, you know, Sacks really has a, a genre in many of his books, right? Which is, you know, they're very case-focused. They're, you know, a kind of medical mystery, right? That, like, you have this patient who's presenting themselves and, you know, there's something going wrong um, in that patient's life. And through the kind of medical sleuthing of Sacks, you're able to figure out what it is and in many respects, like fix whatever it is. Right. And I think that, um, uh, you know, one of, well, there's a variety of challenges, right. But like one of the things that I always kind of found unsettling is that it's like, 
pharmaceuticals to the rescue, right? That like, if we can just figure out what drug this person needs, we'll be able to fix it, right? Or what kind of surgery this person needs. And you get that. um, And I talk about uh, Antonio Damasio at length in one of the chapters in the books, because he follows the same kind of generic pattern in a lot of the books that he's written. He's, you know, a leading neuroscientist, and he's written a number of books that humanists and social scientists, you know, like, like, and I went through a phase of liking them too, right? But they're like, they present you with patients who are having some kind of problem and medical sciences to their rescue, right? And, you know, generically, it, it always, and, you know, there's, of course, reasons why they're set up the way that they are, right? But that, like, it's kind of like, you just, like, just call the doctors and everything will be okay, right? That it's about expertise and um and so similarly unraveling is really case driven right that like in the first draft of the book instead of having five chapters or six chapters it was um 24 chapters right and each of the sections of each of the chapters was its own standalone chapter and it looked a lot like an oliver sacks book um that it was like here's this case of a person, here's another case of a person, here's like, here's what's actually going on, right? And um, again, a peer reviewer was like, I don't think that this works in quite the way that you think it does. Um, and and I sat with that one too, and rewrote it into these kind of more standard uh, chapters that are kind of more concept driven in some sense. But the... Um, but what I wanted to avoid in every case was the idea that there was a solution to some quote unquote problem, right? That like what I wanted to really focus on, and this is why it's the kind of perversity or perversion of Oliver Sacks, right? That like that medicine isn't going to come to the rescue or, you know, psychiatry is not the solution in some sense. Um, in that it's really by thinking about, the lives of these people and how they, you know, adapt to the communicative difficulties that they have, that we can kind of start to develop a a different framework for thinking about personhood and subjectivity. And, you know, part of that is really thinking about um, the the kind of genealogies that um, lead to certain kinds of symptoms being read as pathological symptoms, right? As opposed to just human variation, right? And so throughout, and I know we'll talk about this, right? I mean, throughout unraveling, it's really thinking about using these cases of people um, to think about various psi and neurodisciplines and, you know, what kinds of presuppositions they have, about communication and language and speech, apparently, uh, uh, um, and uh, and how that informs, you know, what they allow as like full personhood and normative forms of subjectivity. Right. So, so before we jump into the first chapter is Damasio and a, a particularly famous case study. But before we kind of dive into the 
the um, body of the book. I wondered if you could try to give our listeners a brief summary of your argument and and maybe define some of the terms that are necessary because it is it is a little intricate and it's a little complex. Um, and I, I th- it, it might be worth um, taking some time to unpack it at the beginning. So it, it, the, you know the book really tries to follow a bunch of ideas, right? And that part of that is thinking through the history of liberalism and how it informs our ideas about value and personhood and subjectivity. And then over the course of the book or over the course of the chapters, I'm trying to extract some theoretical ideas from the cases that I'm talking about, right? And so those are thinking about connectivity and modularity and facilitation and animation and how they all add up. And I think that this is why I have the experience that I do um, toward the end of the book is that it it's really kind of working into this cybernetic model of affect and it lends itself into this argument around what I refer to as affective bioethics, right? And that, you know, part of what I'm struggling with in the book is moving away from the implicit assumptions around value and individual lives, right? That like, if you look at, um, you know, the history of liberalism and ideas around personhood and citizenship and subjectivity, there's always these refrains about like making people uh, be valued by the state, right? And one of the dangers in that is that like it's always um, a distancing process, right? That like I value more than those other people do, right? That like in attempts to be included, people are excluding other people. And one of the arguments that I try and make in the book, right, is that like the status of being nonverbal and not being able to communicate in normative ways is often the bottom rung of those forms of um, liberal evaluation, right? That like, at least we're not like those people over there, right? And who can't communicate. And so, you know, what I really try and do over the course of the book is like, set those questions aside and try and articulate a way to think about like, sociality and reciprocity and interdependence um, that like depends on these ideas around facilitation and animation and modularity and connection, right? That like sidestep the value question, right? And, you know, the, um, I think it's hard because in many respects, like we, we exist in a social framework where recognition is like the um, token by which we enter into a relationship with the state and with the various institutions that we interact with. And we need to refuse that in some sense. You know, I think about someone like Audra Simpson and her arguments around refusal um, in relationship to um, the Mohawk Nation, right? As like, a way as a model to think about 
um, disability and its relationship to the institutions that we participate in. And so, you know, one of the other currents throughout the book is thinking about institutions as a thing that make up our lives and that make up ourselves in some sense. And I really try and, you know, unsettle what those institutions are and what they can be and with the kinds of effects that we can have on them as opposed to just the kind of Foucauldian sense that institutions, you know, solely shape us. Right. And so, you know, if we want to anticipate some of the other stuff in the book, right. That like one of the arguments is to really think about the necessary modularity of institutions and that if we think about them, not as something that's like a top down in their structure, but can be more supple and built from the ground up, recognizing that what they need to do are facilitate relationships between people and animate people and their relationships, um, that we can develop different kinds of institutions. In my reading of the book, institutions do not come off looking good. No, I mean, I think that they're, uh, I think that they're bad, right? And, you know, there's ways, I mean, especially when you're thinking about the history of people who are nonverbal, there are a bunch of, like, bad histories of institutions, right? And um, in terms of asylums and residential hospitals and even public schools um, for kids with special needs, right? That like institutions let a lot of terrible things happen to people. And, um, and, and I mean, I think one of the stretches in my argument is really to think about how language itself is an institution and that there are, um, uh, I guardedly say violences uh, encoded in language and the way it's enacted, right? But that, like, that all of these are often weaponized in ways that make um, disability really precarious for people. And so, you know, part of my work through these various histories and case studies, right, is to think about, like, what kinds of institutions can we work towards as being the things that care for people and facilitate their being in the world in ways that are generative, not just for individuals, but for whole communities. And, I mean, this is kind of anticipating the the end of the book, but maybe that's okay. That, like, Mm -hmm. I really try and make an argument for rethinking what the family is, right? That, like, Mm -hmm we're so wedded to the idea of the nuclear family, which is really this product of industrial capital. And, you know, when you look at the anthropological record and you look at the historical record, kinship doesn't always look this way. And, you know, it's because we're, and I say we're meaning Americans really like, because we're so wedded to this idea of the nuclear family that, we outsource so much of the care of our <clears throat> disabled family members, but also our kids and our elders. And, you know, like in, in doing that, you know, like we uphold a certain model of the family, but it's really upholding a certain model of capital, right? And the way that it 
you know, code certain kinds of activity as labor and other kinds of activity as care. And I think that if we really want to develop a more like nuanced set of um, uh, caring tools, what we need are different models for kinship. And, you know, I guess in, in many respects, if um, that makes me a very, traditional anthropologist and that I'm going to like make an argument about care. But I, but in doing that, I'm really trying to move away from this idea that like the family needs to look a particular way and the family needs to um, exist in a particular kind of relationship to the state, right? That like what we need are different models that move us away from um, that, 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 that kind of demand to value life in particular kinds of ways that is like threaded into uh, the very fabric of capitalism um, and that like we, we need different models, right? And so really on some level, what I'm trying to do with unraveling is develop those models or a set of tools to think about what those models might look like and how they might be enacted. So, so what has to be then unraveled in order for you to develop something new or a new direction or a new new way of thinking? Because one thing that I, I appreciated about the book was it was not, and I I, 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 I was kind of a little bit um, anticipated that it, it, or afraid that it might be, it's not a facile critique of the neurosciences. It's not like, oh, they want to reduce everything to the brain and people have souls and people have conscious, right? It's, that's, that's not what this book is. It's a more, more complicated argument. Um, But it's, it is, it's critical of neuroreductionism, but it's also critical of psychoanalysis. So um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of what, what kind, what kind of things have to be deconstructed in order for you to, to present this more forward-looking vision that you get to kind of by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, so the kind of three substantive chapters um, work through various kinds of traditions that um, uh, that are maybe popular, right? So the the first one is about neuroreductivism, right? And the way that, you know, it's all about the brain, right? And that if we just understand the kind of material and chemical functioning of the brain, we can explain all of these phenomena, right? And that that's like, that's the Oliver Sacks um, chapter in some sense. And then the the second um, chapter is about psychoanalysis and, you know, this idea that, you know, like everything is just um, symbolic, right? And that it's about particular kinds of um, individual and social histories. And then the third substantive chapter is about um, what I kind of think about as materialist neuroscience, which is like not just the brain, but also thinking about the environment that individuals are in. And, um, you know, as you say, I kind of have problems with each of them that like there um, all there are utilities to each of those traditions and um, at the same time in each of those traditions there's ways that people who are nonverbal are ruled out right of personhood and subjectivity 
And so there, as, and, you know, this is maybe part of the momentum of the book too, right? That like part of what I try and do throughout is both say like, these are the problems with this tradition, but these are the kind of useful things about it. So that by the time I roll around thinking about cybernetics as a framework to develop a kind of effective um, bioethics, that like there are parts of those other traditions that inform that um, discussion, right? And so I was, um, uh, um, facile is a good word for it, right? That like I, I feel like often when we look at critiques of, um, neuroscience and medicine more generally um you often scholars often fall into this trap which is like you know that may be true over there but look at all of this other stuff over here that like either can't be explained by medicine or is more important than that kind of like you know reductive understanding about human lives and human sociality and, you know, like, I feel like I was tempted by that in many respects um, in in working on an earlier version of the book and that, like, what I needed to do was really think about, like, you know, the kind of so what question, right? That, like, it, it's fine to critique this stuff, but, like, unless you're actually developing something that can stand in its place, why do the critique, right? That, like... It, the diagnosis is one thing, but unless you can fix it, you know, a diagnosis only takes you so far. And so, you know, I, um, um, I, you know, uh, I have an ambivalent relationship with a lot of the neuro and side disciplines that I write about. And I mean that in a deeply psychoanalytic sense, right? That like I have, um, spent a lot of my life, you know, distancing, both learning and distancing myself from those traditions, right? And, um, and so, you know, like, in, in the first um, project on sleep, right, it was spending a bunch of time with neuroscientists and neurologists and psychiatrists, many of whom really were wedded to a kind of neuroreductive model, right? That like, you just need the drug and it will fix everything. But there were several of them who weren't. And, you know, they were really interested in finding kind of like social fixes to physiological problems, right? And, you know, that meant trying to arrange for kids to go into school late and, you know, do their work offline and um, finding different ways for people to do their jobs and stuff like that. And, um, and so I really was interested, especially in the slumbering masses and thinking about like how you make those kinds of institutional affordances for non-normative sleep. But then as I was working on this project, one of the field work, experiences I had was enrolling in a Lacanian psychoanalytic program, um, which I don't really write about in the book. I think there's a footnote somewhere and I've, I've published some of that stuff outside. And, you know, part of that was really like diving into psychoanalysis to see if like does contemporary psychoanalysis have a solution to 
like the insufficiencies of the neuro and side disciplines and um it doesn't uh no, no. <laughs> i mean i at least that's the argument that i i make right that like that psychoanalysis is good for some things but in many respects it 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 has equally bad hang-ups um in that like it, it there are whole kinds of people who aren't recognized as persons in psychoanalysis because they don't use language and language is critical to the psychoanalytic project right and um i feel like i'm veering really far from the question but like but across all of those disciplines it was like well what we need to unravel are these genealogies of thought right and like how do they all fall back on the same um, exclusion of people who are nonverbal as full persons, right? Like that, in some sense, is the genealogical project throughout. Um, and, you know, simultaneously, it's really thinking about families, right? And how they're struggling to care for individuals who either don't have communicative facilities or they have lost them, right? And, um, and how they unravel their understandings about what, you know, a family should look like and what interaction, interaction should look like in order to redevelop a new model for how they want their family to be and how their family can care for those individuals, right? So in, you know, as a, um, um, as a, tool right the that unraveling is really meant to both do that kind of um genealogical work and that kind of um, textual and ethnographic work and thinking about like how do you take these um disciplines and institutions and expectations apart and then weave something different out of them right so it it it's both a kind of like diagnostic and uh, a constructive um, project. So let's let's talk about the, um, the the new thing that is that is woven um, and um, and what it is and and what it it's it's it seems to be inspired by Gregory Bateson. Am I saying mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. It's an anthropologist. Um, and then a reconstruction based on these other traditions that you talk about. Um, so just t- tell us a little bit about who Gregory Bateson is and then how his work um, kind of in, informs um, what, what the, the, your, your interpretation of, of contemporary therapies and sort of, you know, visions for um, possible futures mm-hmm. towards the end of the book. Sure. So Bateson, um, I mean, I think I refer to him as a gadfly, um, that, you know, he was trained as an anthropologist and, um, wrote a pretty well-regarded book called Naven, um, early in his career. And, uh, um, and I'm not going to get into his uh, romantic ties, uh, but like it over what what happened was he never really found an institutional home, and um, 
he spent a bunch of time at a bunch of different places. One of those was Santa Cruz. And so his archives are there. Um, and, um, and one of the other places was at Stanford where he worked with a bunch of um, family therapists on developing um, what would become um, a kind of explanation for schizophrenia, which we can, which I don't really talk about very much in the book, but it's this notion of the double bind. Um, and, and we can talk about that or not, mm-hmm. as maybe, but, um, but what was really important for me about Bateson is that like he, um, there's a whole history of cybernetics to get into that I won't, but like he was kind of in the right place at the right time where early cybernetics was being developed across a variety of disciplines, right? And in the beginning, cybernetics was not the kind of like computational informatics that we kind of understand cybernetics to be today, but really this like master science in that it was trying to work across a variety of disciplines in order to explain pretty diverse phenomena. And, you know, for Bateson, it was really thinking about social phenomena, and um, it's, it, it becomes important for him and by extension for me in thinking about um, bodies and their relationships with their environments. And so there's this quote that I pull out of um, an uh, essay of his about a blind man and his uh, his cane, right? Although mm-hmm. it refers to it as a stick. And what the what Bateson is trying to think about in that quote is like, where does that person's body end and where does the tool begin? And can you even um, make that kind of distinction for a, a, a tool that in some sense is a dependency, right? And if you're going to extend that to the tool, why don't we extend it to the environment, right? So if you're thinking about the person and their connection to the environment, Bateson really wants to think about it as like, you know, a unified system. And and that's important to me throughout the book because, you know, often one of the challenges that we see is that like there's a either explicit or implicit Cartesianism in things like, neuroreductive um, neurosciences or psychoanalysis, you know, that like, it's all about that even when they say that they're not, they still are right. And that like, it's just about the brain or it's just about the person inside the body. Right. And that on some level, all of this other somatic stuff is just noise. And, um, and so I really wanted to think about like, well, what if you put all the noise, what, what if you make the noise integral to the system right and that's like key cybernetics right that if like you take all that you take the whole system and you like resituate it so that the noise is like the noise is the system in some sense right that like it's going to give you a different picture and it's only through some kind of ideological reduction that you can wed yourself to any kind of Cartesianism, right? And so Bateson was really useful in, um, in, in finding a tool in some sense or a theoretical framework that I could 
bring all of this stuff in in a way that was really inclusive and constructive. Um, and so, you know, some of the other stuff that I write about in terms of like uh, repurposing cybernetics is um, from a family systems therapist named Moni Alkaim, who draws a lot from Bateson and thinking about, you know, the family as a kind of cybernetic system. And, you know, he um, is really interested in how people live with their dysfunction, right? That like from outside of the system, it looks like these families are totally dysfunctional, but within the system, that dysfunction is, it does something for everybody, right? And that it is um, validating and motivating and generative, right? And that like, that's the noise in some respect. And so if we really, and I, you know, throughout the book, I use disorder instead of disability because I want to think about that um, as something that is disordering to like it being non-communicative or non-verbal is disordering to families and institutions. Right. But it also produces new kinds of orders. Right. So, um, you know, Bateson, and I mean, he's got a career that's too weird and too diverse to really reduce him to any kind of, you know, um, simple figure, right? But like, but Bateson was really helpful in trying to like, find a way forward um, in pulling all of this diverse stuff together. So we are, um, we're getting close to running out of time, but I don't want to wrap up without talking about effective bioethics. Um, because in a, in a way, this is the concept that kind of brings the whole book together, but it doesn't, it, it only, it, it emerges at the end of the book. And so um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what, what exactly is effective bioethics as you define it, and then what kinds of implications um, does unraveling have um, for bioethics? Mm-hmm. So um, is it fair to say I'm not entirely sure? I mean, on some level, <laughs> I mean, I, on some level, what, um, and you get this, you know, throughout what we've been talking about, right? That like, um, on some level, I'm really trying to develop a different framework for thinking about um, who counts and who doesn't, right? And, um, and, in you know making an inclusive argument that like everybody counts right and that in in making that kind of argument it really meant thinking like well if everybody counts like by what metric does everybody count and and so you know the the final cases in the book are um about um a man who has a stroke and uh and develops aphasia and then um, comes back to language, right? And then the other one is about someone who is, has a heart attack and is in a persistent vegetative state, right? And they're kind of perverse examples, um, and they, you know, work in many ways against one another because what I'm trying to think about in the relationships that people have with those individuals are the effective um, 
uh, relations, right? And how through those effective relations, they are changed and they change the people that they're interacting with, right? So, you know, part of it was thinking about um, like how... Like what? What are the critiques of um, bioethics from within disability studies? And so, uh, thinking about that led me to Adrian Ash, who is, you know, identifies as disabled. And you know, one of the things that she argues is that, like, when she gets to the point of no longer being able to recognize the people in her li- life, you know, like that is in some sense the limit of her personhood. And I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that position because I think that there are ways that, you know, even beyond recognition, <clears throat> people have a effective relationships with other people, right? And so <clears throat> in, you know, many of the cases in the book where there are, you know, children or adults who, you know, by the account of the other people in their lives might not necessarily recognize them, it doesn't mean that they don't have some kind of effective relationship with those people. And, you know, when I, in, in, I guess I'm being obscure in some sense in like not really defining what I mean by affect there, but what I, what I mean is the ability to be changed, right? That like, when you think about the kind of, the materiality of our effective relationships with each other. It's about the ability to interact and to be interacted with. Right. And, and so I try and make the argument that like that should be our limit in some sense, right. That like when we're thinking about like, what are the limits of life? It's really only those people who are beyond the ability to be changed in any way or to change other people that like that like like that's the limit. And I'm not even entirely comfortable making that argument, right? But like I felt like it was so important to stake out some position against the kind of normative bioethics that we so often see, right? Which is, you know, unfortunately in the United States, so informed by kind of cost benefit analyses of, you know, prolonging people's lives. Right. And so the, um, and medical interventions more generally, and, you know, part of, and you get this throughout this conversation, right. Yeah. I mean, part of the thing, or one of the things that I'm constantly struggling with is like what's on the other side of capital, right. That like on some level we can play, pragmatic games and develop relatively pragmatic strategies within the strictures of American capitalism that allow us to do certain kinds of things and maybe make certain people's lives better, but it doesn't, it's not liberatory in any particular kind of way. And that like, if we really want to think about a more inclusive, more transformative set of relations that care for more kinds of people in ways that are generative, both for those people and for the people that care for them, we have to think beyond capital, right? And so, I mean, I make snarky arguments elsewhere about the problems with bioethicists being too wedded to capital and that like in unraveling, what I really want to do is like 
set capital aside in some sense, right? That like, if the slumbering masses was really me, uh, um, like taking an ax to like industrial and post-industrial capitalism and thinking about like how we can carve out something different unraveling really tries to set it all aside and say like if we just look at these relationships what kind of framework do they give us in order to like create a more capacious way for relating with other people and for caring for themselves caring for them and caring for our ourselves right um so you know effective bioethics in some sense was really my attempt to destabilize the kind of surety that some bioethicists have about like whether or not you know this patient is going to pull through right like i think or you know what's their life going to be like after whatever the you know, intervention or after the accident or whatever the case may be, right? And to say that, like, that's that's the wrong question, right? Like, if we're thinking about just an individual, we're, we're asking the wrong bioethical question. We need to think about the network that that person is enmeshed within, right? And that's an interpersonal network uh, about, you know, kin relationships, but also relationships with the people who care for them. And it's about the kind of material world that that person is um, ensconced within, right? And so sometimes what that means is like taking people out of that um, environment or out of those relationships and putting them into different kinds of environments and different kinds of relationships because those outcomes will be better right um and that like when fundamentally what we need is a foil to that kind of like capitalist and reductive way of thinking about individuals and you know whether or not we we and and i i really mean a inclusive we can make their lives better right like we we can we just need different kinds of questions and different kinds of possibilities for making those lives better. Right. Right. So, so, so it ends, it does end on a very forward, forward looking and, and, and possibly even, even hopeful note. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, Matthew. Um, I wondered if you, if you could tell us what you're working on now, what's next now that unraveling is out in the world. Uh, huh. Um, I, so <laughs> something, well, it, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I I have a book that's about what I refer to as excremental medicine. Um, <laughs> and what that is, is about like the resurgent interest in um, using uh, human excrement as a medical therapeutic. And um, I've been slowly working on it for a long time. Um, and, and part of that is about the history of medicine and um, colonialism in the United States and, you know, like how excremental medicine is attributed to non-whites and how it's unclean and it, it runs alongside Kellogg's experiments with hydrotherapy mm-hmm. and all of this stuff, right? Um, and, you know, a kind of history of... Uh, um, uh, 
biotic foods, right? Like pickles and yogurts and stuff like that. So I'm trying to work my way through that. And um, it's something. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like a fascinating project. It, yeah. In a lot of ways it is. And there are a lot of parts I like about it. Um, and, and, you know, the overarching thing is thinking about disgust and subjectivity mm-hmm. and how, you know, what we see, what, what we see in contemporary medicine is really a kind of um, a, a, a form of colonial and post-colonial disgust that shapes, you know, like what we think of as being um, possible and impossible kinds of medical treatments, right? And how that's changing in our contemporary moment. Um, and, and so I would really like to be done with that book at this point. Okay. Um, <laughs> The other one, and I mean, this is why I kind of waffle about this, that like, so the other thing that I have really been trying to work with is, you know, in Unraveling, it was really, for the most part, thinking about people who are born with a certain kind of disability, right? Um, And so I've become really interested in thinking about people who have acquired disabilities. And um, that has led me to... um, boxing and people who um, have, you know, repeated concussions and how that shapes their cognitive abilities and, um, you know, that the kind of additive experience of that damage. And um, as I started to work on that, I realized that nobody's written a history of concussion um, and it comes out of a forensic pathologist who was... um, uh, working in and around New York City and working with a bunch of boxers' bodies. And I realized that there's this story to tell about race and cognition and disability. Um, and that uh, I guess I'm going to do that. Um, and, and so I, th- that, I think, in some respects, kind of continues the through line from the slumbering masses and unraveling, but it tries to put it into a much more kind of racialized context, which is one of those things is like always under the surface of a lot of what I'm writing about. Um, but n- now it's like really explicit, but you know, COVID has kind of thrown a wrench in everything. So everything, right. Well, both of those projects sound great. They sound wonderful. I would like to be done with both of them. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Anyway. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for for writing Unraveling and for taking time to share it with our listeners today. Thanks, Claire, for taking the time to have the conversation.